0: Section 17 of Seven Roman Statesmen of the Later Republic by Charles Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7 Cato, Part 1. Among all the statesmen with whom we have to deal in this last century of the Roman Republic, there were only two who were unselfish in their aims, looked for no personal profit, and devoted their lives to fighting for their party and their theory of the constitution. These were the two men who, among all the figures of this troubled time, bore the least similarity to each other, Lucius Cornelius Sulla and Marcus Porcius Cato. Save that each was a devoted and disinterested partisan of the optimate faction, there is absolutely no resemblance between them. What Sulla was, we have already seen an Epicurean to the core, gay, fastidious, taking life easily, save in the moments of actual crisis in war or politics, but when the heat of the fray was upon him, capable of systematic cruelty on the widest scale. In all, save his reactionary politics and his contempt for monarchy and its trappings, he was a typical Hellenized Roman of the decadence. Cato, on the other hand, was consistent in his reaction. He looked back to old Roman ideals, not merely in politics, but in social manners, dress, bearing, and morals. He is the most complete instance in history of what we may call deliberate archaism, the careful observance of the customs and views of an extinct generation by a man who was clever enough to see the strangeness of what he was doing, and yet persevered in it. For Cato was no mere Don Quixote, as Mumpson calls him. He did not spend his life in fighting monsters that were unreal, tilting at windmills or at flocks of sheep, or taking innkeepers and milkmaids for castellans and princesses. On the contrary, he knew precisely whom he was fighting with and what he was fighting for, and used every means that an honourable man might, the most practical and positive no less than those mere constitutional figments in which the Roman mind delighted to deal. Unlike a Don Quixote, he was a thoroughly successful minister of finance, and an excellent and practical soldier. It was only because he fought for an impossible ideal, and because he was foiled by meaner and pettier souls, that he can possibly be called by the mocking name which Momsen has imposed on him marcus cato was the great-grandson of old cato the kensor a fact which was destined to colour his whole life for it was his dearest wish to copy in everything down to tricks of language and dress a man who had already been noted as somewhat quaint and old-fashioned eighty years before hence came his reputation for eccentricity it was in imitating his ancestor that cato learned to despise all fine raiment to such an extent that he habitually dressed in sombre colours he would sit in the tribunal without his shoes refused to ride when going about on public missions with his friends and would not wear a hat even when he was marching across africa in midsummer it was probably the example of the elder cato too that induced the younger to show the one concession to the spirit of the times of which he was ever guilty to study greek philosophy and keep at home as a sort of private chaplain a tame philosopher named athenodorus whom he had picked up at ephesus it is fortunate that plutarch has preserved for us a long and detailed life of cato it is from anecdotes there related that we are able to make out how a man who was somewhat eccentric in his habits and somewhat idealistic in his political views, was able to exercise so considerable a sway over the politics of his own day. The sway, always exerted by the man who knows his own mind, is perfectly consistent, and is ready at any personal risk, however great, to act in accordance with his conscience. In a time when everyone else was peculiarly slack and acquiescent, and given to the grossest opportunism, The man who refused to yield to the stress of affairs or the spirit of the times, and rigidly did his duty, got an influence far beyond that to which his merely intellectual powers entitled him. Cato was born in B.C. 95. The earliest notices that we have of him show him displaying the same inflexible courage and the same adherence to old views, wrong as well as right, which distinguished him down to his death. His father died when he was very young, and he was brought up by his maternal uncle, the celebrated popular leader, Drusus. The house of Drusus was haunted, during his agitation, by the prominent Italians, for whom he was working, the men who afterwards led the revolt when he had been murdered. Quintus Pompeius Silo was staying with Drusus when he fell in with the boy Cato, aged five, and his younger half-brother, Servilius Caipio. Come, my good children, you will help your uncle Drusus, will you not? To assist us poor Italians in getting our freedom, said the Marcion. Sir Willius lisped polite assent, but Cato had already picked up political views and did not love Italians. He said, not a word, and appeared from his silence and his surly looks inclined to deny the request. Pompidius, half irritated, half in jest, took him to the window and held him out of it by the scruff of his neck, threatening, if he would not promise, to let him drop. This he did in a harsh tone, and at the same time gave him several shakes, as if he were about to let go. But as the child bore this for some time without any marks of concern or fear, Pompidius set him down, observing, I verily believe that if this boy were a man, we should not get even one vote among the roman people nine years later when cato was fourteen he was taken by his optimate relatives to visit sulla at the time of the proscriptions while he was waiting with his pedagogue sarpedon in the hall he saw several delators bring the heads of democratic leaders to the dictator's house and receive money for them at this he was very wroth and asked his tutor why somebody does not kill this man because said sarpedon men fear him more than they hate him then give me a sword said cato and i will go in and make away with him for evidently he is enslaving his country so obviously in earnest was he that he had to be hurried out of the house to prevent his doing something violent and to be narrowly watched for some time cato first appeared in public life some four or five years after this incident attending the courts like other young Romans of his age. There he acquired a very good knowledge of law, and taught himself a kind of oratory which, as we are told, differed much from the florid style of Hortensius, and the careful elaborateness of Cicero, for there was neither heat nor artificiality in it, all was rough, strong, and sensible. Yet he had a turn for natural humor, and a clear exposition which served him as well as the studied eloquence of others besides attending in the law courts the young roman had to serve his stipendia in the field cato saw his first service in the Cohors praetoria of the proconsul gellius in the unhappy servile war with spartacus he was noted as one of the few officers in the contemptible army of b c seventy two who did his work punctually and intelligently he was offered crowns and promotions by gellius but refused them saying that he had only done his duty and nothing that deserved honor. When the Servile War ended, he went to Macedonia and served under the proconsul Rubrius in B.C. 68 with the office of military tribune, which gave him a turn in the command of a legion. His troops soon obtained a good name in the province, because instead of caring for his own comfort like other officers, he insisted on living with his men and taking no better rations than they on the march though his freedmen rode on horses he insisted on going on foot with his soldiers and on carefully putting himself in the way of every fatigue that came to them yet he would not allow undue familiarity was unhesitating in the application of punishments and sternly repressed plundering so that as plutarch says it was doubted whether his legion was more peaceable or more warlike more valiant or more well-behaved having now passed twenty-four the age at which it was possible to stand for the quaestorship he came back to rome but refused to solicit the magistracy till he had spent many months in getting up all the duties and functions of a quaestor so that he stood a year late for the office his year was notable in the history of the quaestorship for the thorough reformation which he made he found the treasury almost entirely in the hands of the permanent under-secretaries who had the routine of the business in their hands and did practically what they liked with the young and inexperienced quaestors who generally entered the office entirely ignorant of their functions and were only just beginning to learn them when they found their twelve months at an end but cato started with his duties and powers at his fingers ends and soon detected the permanent clerks committing all sorts of irregularities and illegalities to their own private profit he turned out one chief clerk for embezzlement and another for forgery though it set a hornet's nest of friends and patrons of the offenders about his ears having humbled the secretaries he took the whole management of the irarium in his own hands his lazy and indifferent colleagues gladly allowing him to bear all the burden in a short time it is said he made the treasury much more respectable than the senate and his quaestorship more memorable than most consulates for he recovered an immense amount of outstanding debts owed by men of mark whom his predecessor had not dared to press and at the same time paid off a number of bills owed by the state to poor men which the unhappy creditors had long despaired of recovering one extraordinary instance of his courage has been preserved Finding a list of Sulla's delators and of the sums they had been paid for the murders they had committed, he compelled all the survivors to pay back the blood money, because, as he said, it had been an illegal disbursement never justified by any decree of the people. When his year of office was running out, Cato had a complete chart and analysis of the public revenues for the last ten years made out, at the personal expense to himself of five talents he kept it and it proved invaluable to future quaestors who always came to consult him when in difficulties and to get his lights on the meaning of difficult points in the annual balance sheet of the republic at thirty-one then cato had a fair military record and was acknowledged to be the best financial expert in the senate a reputation which he preserved till his death he would seem to have intended to spend some time in getting up the duties of the higher offices of state but was suddenly called into activity by the catalinarian conspiracy he is generally remembered for the support that he gave to cicero through all the troubles of b c sixty three yet curiously enough he was on one occasion brought into violent collision with the consul he prosecuted Murina, the optimate consul-elect for b c sixty two for bribery at the elections and when he came into the court found cicero opposing him as the defendant's advocate the offence had been a gross one and the council had nothing better to do in the way of defence than to follow the good old forensic maxim if you have no case abuse the plaintiff's attorney accordingly he grew offensively personal jeering at stoics and hinting that cato's love of purity and legality might be in place in some ideal republic but not in rome till he set the jury in a roar cato was defeated but contented himself with remarking that rome had a very facetious consul he took no offence at the ridicule that had been poured on him and remained a consistent supporter of cicero